Amen. Let me invite you this morning, let's take our Bible to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter number one is where we're going to find our text this morning. We're starting a new series and study. We're going to come through the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah chapter one, come down through uh, verse three as, a, as our opening text. And uh, you'll see that this book has four chapters. And, and uh, so we're, uh, we're looking at more of a shorter series and probably, well, I'm not going to say how many messages. I'll, I'll get in trouble. I don't want to get your hopes up. Uh, if you know what I'm talking about, uh, won't be as long as Ephesians. I'll put it that way, um, because this is a different different form of uh, writing and literature, very much narrative. But within the book of Jonah, there is so much great truth for us to glean, and uh, so much that we can see in in really the bigger picture of God's redemptive working. And uh, I pray that this this study through the book of Jonah will be a blessing to you and will encourage you. And uh, it always encourages me. I, I love this book. And uh, so we're going to begin this morning in Jonah 1, look at verse 1 through 3. And this is going to be more of an introductory uh, sermon and overview for the book And uh, before we really dive into a lot of the meat as we come through it. But I've titled the message, God's Persistent Grace Through a Graceless Prophet. That's essentially what I would give as an overview statement of the book of Jonah. God's persistent grace through a graceless prophet. And you'll see that in the big picture as we come through the book. Uh, But let's begin reading and then we'll dive in. Notice in verse number 1 that the Bible says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And when you hear the name Jonah, what do you immediately or firstly think about? Well, we, th- we think about the whale, right? <laughs> we think about Jonah Uh, Most of us think firstly about Jonah being swallowed by the whale or the great fish uh, and him being in the belly of that great fish for three days and three nights. And that was always one of the more fascinating accounts of scriptures and uh, taught and learned as a kid and just learning about the many miracles and things that we see in, uh, in God's Word. And it's a subject of great attention, this particular miracle is. It's a fascinating account, uh, especially learning it at young age. But it's also a very skeptical, skeptical account for the unbeliever who sees it as, uh, that's probably not really possible, right? Now, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, the story of Jonah is one of great recognition. Probably heard it in some degree. But did you know that Jonah being swallowed by the great fish is not the point of the book? It's not the point of the book. It's a great byproduct and miracle that we see within the book woven into the bigger picture of what we see throughout this text. What is really the central message of Jonah? It is God's persistent grace through a graceless prophet. It is God's grace magnified in the book. And it is magnified both, really two ways, towards Jonah and also towards Nineveh. We see His grace woven, woven through this book in in various ways. And I hope that you'll see this as we come into it. Now, along the way, there's going to be many other great lessons we learn from the book. But central to them 
I want us to see as we expound this text is the grace of God and the central theme. Because if we miss the main point, we miss the purpose. And if we miss the purpose of the book overall, we will fail to see the beauty and glory of Christ within the book of Jonah. You say, what do you mean? Jesus isn't mentioned in the book of Jonah. Christian, Jesus is in every book of the Bible. Jesus is in every book of the Bible. Now, we, we need to understand that, that He's the chief focus. Many today want to discount the Old Testament as if it's less relevant than the New Testament. But let us understand something. When, when Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, he said, All Scripture is God-breathed, is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Do you understand what Scripture he's talking about when he's speaking to Timothy? He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, it certainly applies to all the New Testament, but the New Testament was being written. It wasn't finalized. It wasn't complete. And so the early church used the Old Testament to bring people to Christ, to teach people the gospel. And so the Old Testament speaks of the same God, the same problem of sin, the same need for redemption, and the same gospel message in Christ. And one of the great glories of the Word of God and how it's been given to us is that in every book of the Bible we can learn a little more about Jesus and about God and His overall redemptive plan and purposes. Now Jonah teaches us much about the experience of grace through a prophet and really to a nation. And I think Sinclair Ferguson summarizes well when he says it is really a book about how one man came through painful experience to discover the true character of the God whom he had already served in the earlier years of his life. He was to find the doctrine about God with which he had long been familiar come alive in his own experience. So as we begin this book, I want to give some background. I want to give some, uh, some overview before we dive into it verse by verse. Notice with me in our notes this morning, number one, I want you to see the prophet who is known as Jonah. The prophet. We say, who is this guy? What's he about? What do we know about him? That's what I want you to see. Notice with me Jonah's background to begin with. Jonah's background. Now, as you probably already know, the book of Jonah is considered one of the minor prophets, which includes Hosea through Malachi. It's 12 books in the Old Testament. They're sometimes forgotten because they're kind of tucked away there. They're, they're minor in their length. That's why they're called the minor prophets. But they are not minor in their content. <laughs> they are not minor in the truth that is conveyed through them. Now, Jonah differs from the other minor prophets in that Jonah is a recollection of his experiences, not necessarily a collection of prophetic utterances and messages. So this is more narrative. We're learning about an experience in Jonah's life that really communicates truth to us through him. Now, the closest parallel in the prophets to Jonah probably would be Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings. Neither of them wrote a book of the Bible, but their experience is recorded. And we learn from their experience some great truths. So the important question with Jonah is often, well, who wrote the book of Jonah? The, the most natural deduction would be that Jonah himself has penned this book. That it is written by him, recounting his own experience in the 
third person, which sometimes biblical authors did do that. They referenced themselves in the third person uh, to communicate the message. Now, it could be that somebody else wrote it and pinned down his experience, but it seems more likely that it was Jonah. But what else do we know about Jonah? I want to give you a little background about him. Who was he? What was his occupation? Jonah is a prophet of God. He's a prophet just as much as Malachi, as Hosea, as Isaiah, as Jeremiah, or any of the others that you name. He is a prophet of God. What's that mean? He's ordained and called by God to be one who receives from God the message and communicates to the people the message he got from God. He's one who was a proclaimer. He was one who declared, thus says the Lord. And so as a prophet, we see his important role in the life of Israel. Now when you look at his particular ministry, his ministry began shortly after the time of Elijah and Elisha, if you go read First and Second Kings. We can see one other reference to Jonah in the Bible. Well, in the Old Testament. He's referenced in the New Testament by Jesus. But as far as the Old Testament is concerned, we see reference to him in Second Kings, chapter number 14. And in this chapter, we learn that Jonah served as a prophet in the time of King Jeroboam II, which would have been around 793 to 758 B.C. That's the time frame there. This particular king, and this is important to understanding why Jonah does what he does. This particular king was one of the wicked kings. Because Israel didn't have a bunch of good kings, did they? They had some who were righteous. Some were who were pretty wicked. King Jeroboam, he was a pretty wicked king in northern Israel. And so by this time, it's been about 150 years since the death of King Solomon when the nation was one, but now the nation's divided. Had several different kings. And so the prophet here to the northern kingdom really had two main tasks. They were to call the kings to, and the nation to repentance and to be the messenger of grace on behalf of God. Now let's look for a moment at this background in 2 Kings 14, verse 23 down through verse 27, just for a moment. We see Jonah's reference here. 2 Kings 14, verse 23 through verse 27. The Bible tells us, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the distinction for this king Jeroboam. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, that the God, the, the, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hephar. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now, here's your reference to Jonah and kind of how God used him in this instance. At this time with the wicked king, Israel was in a time of poverty. Religion was very ritualistic. 
They had increasing uh, idolatry and justice had become perverted. Peacetime and wealth had made her bankrupt spiritually, morally, and ethically. And so what we find is that not only are they suffering spiritually in that sense because they're rebellion, we see that there's an Assyrian assault on the northern area of Israel that seriously weakened the kingdom up in that region, including even parts of Syria. And so the Assyrians understand this directly connects to Nineveh because the Ninevites were Assyrians. This is all tied together here. So from this text, what we learn is that though Jeroboam was wicked in his deeds, God still used him to restore the territory of northern Israel back to its proportions even under the era of Solomon's reign. And this was all done according to a specific man's prophecy and word that spoke. Guess who it was? Jonah. Jonah. God gave Jonah this word to proclaim this. And so according to the word of the Lord, God of Israel, which he spake by his servant, Jonah. So Jonah saw firsthand God's grace and mercy on the northern kingdom despite the evil of their king. Despite the evil of their king. So that's important to keep in mind when we come on down through the book. Now I think it's important to note also, where was Jonah from? Well, this text reveals that he is from Gath-Hephar, which is near Nazareth. It's about 14 miles west of the southern part of the Sea of Galilee, which is kind of interesting. So Jonah's from the Galilee region of Israel. You remember what the Pharisees said to themselves about Jesus in the days of Jesus? They were debating about whether Jesus was a prophet, whether he was the Messiah, and one of them said to the other one, he said, Go back and look at the Scriptures. No prophet arises from Galilee. Well, they weren't exactly right, were they? They needed to look at the Scriptures themselves. Jonah was a prophet out of the Galilee region. And so he was a Galilean. And so with Jonah here in his era, he had a front row seat to the grace and mercy of God on a people who did not deserve it, even his own Jewish people. And this is the main thrust of the book, that Jonah here... He's seeing the grace of God, but he has so much more to learn about the grace of God, even though he knows it himself. And I think that is an important point for us. Richard Phillips rightly comments here. He says, It is one thing to know the doctrine of salvation by grace, and quite another to know the grace of the doctrine of salvation. Now, there's a lot of that today, where, where many know the doctrine of grace but they don't really have grace in their heart extended towards other. They're not really knowing it experientially. And that's Jonah's problem. That's not just Jonah's problem. That's a problem in a lot of modern-day Christianity. We need to see this. So we see Jonah's background. But notice with the number two or letter B, we see Jonah's behavior. We're We're well aware of his behavior, right, as we see in our text. Now, when we think of Jonah, do we immediately think of a great prophet who obeyed God like Daniel and was willing to go to the lion's den and he stood for truth and all this? We don't get that kind of mindset about Jonah, do we? The first thing that comes to our mindset about Jonah is that he was quite the rebel. He was quite the disobedient prophet, especially from the text that we see here. We don't really think about God using him in 2 Kings. 
book took, took a long time for me to realize that that was even there. You ever read through your Bible all, all the time and, and you've read the same text over and over and then something else sticks out to you that you never saw before? That was one of those for me. He's like, wait a minute, that's Jonah. Jonah was over here and God used him for this, right? But notice in verse 3, what do we see? God gave him the command and we see these words, Jonah rose up to go to Nineveh. Nope. Rose up to flee. He rose up to run away. God says, go to Nineveh and cry out against it. Preach to them. Jonah does the exact opposite. Absolute disobedience. You ever given a clear command to your child and they immediately do the opposite anyway? Man, it's fun raising kids, right? Just watching them grow and learn. We're trying to teach Spurgeon something really important about dinner time is that when he's there in his high chair, he's not allowed to shove his plate of food onto the ground. I mean, that's, that's a pretty much given thing that a kid shouldn't do, right? But when they're that age, they don't really know any different. He thinks it's hilarious. And so he's getting to where he knows not to do that. And so we tell him, Spurgeon, do not push this. We kind of give him the motion. Don't push this onto the ground. Look away for two seconds, and guess what we hear? The plate splattering on the ground, right? He knew enough at least to, I'll wait till they're not looking, right? Thinking that maybe he'll get away with it. Disobedience, right? Now, it's one thing to train a child and they're learning what obedience is, okay? He, he's a baby. He's, he's learning what it means to obey. But is Jonah a baby? Is he a child? Now, he knows the true God. He has prophesied for God before. He knows the revelation of God. He knows exactly what he is doing. So, so he's a grown man. And here in this case, what do we see with him? He is a rebellious prophet. You see, Jonah had already known what many do not know, is that when God calls on a people to face their sins and repent, God might save those people. God might save those people. And you understand that that is true for us to understand here today. We are rebuked for our sins by the word of God in order that we will repent and be saved. That is the call to mankind. Repent and believe the gospel. Here's why that's so important. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, He said, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise do what? Perish. So, so that's the message. We've all sinned against God. Repent means turn from your sin, acknowledge it, and turn unto the one true God, or perish. That's what Jesus says. That's what we see through Jonah. But Jonah knows the end goal of God's command in Nineveh. He knows that, man, if, if God's calling me to go to a distant people that are not His own in Israel, He must have some kind of plan in order to deliver them. And Jonah confesses he knew, knew that, and that's the reason he fled. If you look at Jonah 4.2, look in your Bible to Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2. Go backwards to the end of the story for a moment. After Nineveh has repented, and we may wonder, why does Jonah just get up and run away in, in chapter 1? He kind of tells us why. He prayed to the Lord God and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You see that? Jonah knows that God is a gracious God and he'll forgive. That's the reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He did not want Nineveh 
to experience that. That says a lot about the heart of Jonah, doesn't it? That'd be like me having a, a hatred for this own community and saying, you know what? I know that God can save them, but I'm just never going to go tell them the gospel. I'm going to keep it to myself. That'd be a tragic thing to do. It'd be a tragic thing to do. Now, he knows this. How does he know this? Well, the Old Testament proclaims the character of God. Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He knows that. He basically quotes that verse here. But he also, how does he know this? He has already seen God's mercy extended towards the evil of Israel when they should have had judgment in the northern kingdom. We think of how Jonah's heart is here. Jonah's rebellion is rooted in something very deep. What we see with it is that it is actually spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. Now, spiritual pride is a great problem for the Israelites. (laughs) If you read their history, they had trouble with that, especially in the days of Jesus you read about it, especially the religious uh, in, in that day. And how did they view the Gentile world? How did many Jews, not all, but many of them view the Gentile world? They viewed them as the lesser of God's creation. Dogs is what they would call them. They viewed themselves as we're the covenant people of God. We're the ones that God called out of darkness and established as a nation, right? That's how they viewed themselves. The Pharisees proudly claimed to Jesus when they were debating him in John 8, 33, he said, we're the offspring of Abraham. In other words, Jesus, don't you know who you're talking to? We are Abraham's offspring. This was the mindset of many of the Jews, and I think we see a little bit of that in Jonah. Now, God tells Jonah in verse 2 that their evil has come up before me. See, Jonah knew that the Ninevites were wicked, but Jonah's main problem is not necessarily that the Ninevites were, were wicked, but that they were the chief enemies of Israel. They were enemies of Israel. He has experienced oppression from the Ninevites in the northern kingdom, the Assyrians. The very name Nineveh dominated their minds the way Babylon would later strike fear into the Jewish hearts. Nineveh was the military capital of Assyria. It was a place of unbounded violence and evil. And so there's a warfare and tension between Nineveh, the Assyrians, and the Israelites. Jonah did not want Nineveh to be blessed with the mercy of of God because of what they had already done and also what they might still do in the future. Jonah wanted God's mercy not to reach them, but only him and his own people. But notice with me number two this morning. We see the background. But notice with me the purpose of the book of Jonah. What are the maybe overall lessons that we learn from Jonah? I give you three, three lessons here I think that are important for us to see through the whole of the book of Jonah. And the first one is this. The book of Jonah teaches us that God's grace has no boundaries. God's grace does not have any boundaries. Now, as you look at the Old Testament... Do you see any kind of specific commission to go into all the world and seek their salvation? You don't. You read that Israel was to be a light of the one true God, but there's no commission as is given in the New Testament, go into the uttermost parts of the earth and preach the gospel. There is nothing of that nature in the Old Testament. 
There was no global commission to reach the entirety of the world. And so you'll find in the Old Testament that there was individual Gentiles who sometimes became part of Israel's commonwealth. This was, this was not something that happened all the time, but it, it happened. But by and large, whole Gentile nations and peoples, they were left in spiritual darkness, following after their own evil hearts, following after their own false gods. And this is why Paul reminds the Gentile Ephesian church about how blessed they are in the gospel of the new covenant. Ephesians 2, 11 and verse 12, he reminds them of who they were. He says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Christian, you understand that that's what it was like for the Gentiles? Understanding the distinction between the Jew and Gentile and the tension there is crucial to understanding the book of Jonah overall. And so when you look at this call to Jonah... He says, arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Go outside the boundaries of Israel. Go to Nineveh. This call is completely unique. There's nothing else like this call in the rest of the Old Testament as far as going out beyond Israel to another nation, to another Gentile world. It's a call to us that reveals God is not just concerned with Israel alone like many of the self-righteous Israelites thought. Speaking of God's call to Jonah, Hugh Martin comments here, and he says of God's call, it says, he violated all the current notions and all the settled expectations of the sacred commonwealth by manifesting his care and claims in regard to the heathen. But here's what I want you to see, how this ties into the overall redemptive plan of God. This should, not, this should have been more readily received by Jonah. Why? Because God's original promise to Abraham was not to bless Abraham and only his seed. It was to bless all families in the earth through his seed. Genesis 12 and verse 3, when God first calls Abram out of paganism, out of Ur of the Chaldees, calls him out. Abraham, you understand, Abram was nothing more than a pagan before God snatched him, before God called him. He wasn't some unique Jewish guy over here and God said, okay, move over here. He was a pagan, serving false gods, and so was his family. But the one true God, by His grace, calls to Abraham, pulls him out of that to make from him a people that would be unto God Himself. And in that promise, He says to Abram in Genesis 12, 3, In you shall all families of the earth be blessed. In you. This is the Abrahamic covenant. God has called Abraham out to make him a people through his lineage, through his descendants, and that through his people, the rest of the world would be reached. As you look at the New Testament, through a singular seed. That seed would be the Messiah. Jesus Christ, the Savior, not just of Israel, but of the world. 
You see, Jonah's calling here reveals what would be the bigger picture in God's plan for history that we see through Christ in the New Testament. And all along, you, as you look at, at different passages in the Old Testament, God's plan all along has not been just about Israel, but about the nations, all of them. David especially references this quite a bit. Psalm 67, verse 1 through 2. He prays and says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known in earth, your saving power among where? All nations. Repeatedly through the Old Testament we see this. And what do we see in the New, what do we see in the New Testament? We see God's grace by Jesus Christ, His redemptive work, Reaching out into the nations. The time of Messiah had come. His reign of grace would extend far beyond the boundaries of Israel. And Christian, today in Van Buren, Arkansas, you ought to be exceedingly thankful for that very truth. Because you're not a Jew in Israel, are you? Ethnically, I'm not Jewish. I would have been one of these pagan Gentiles, according to the, according to, uh, the Jewish mindset back in the day. And here's what we read. Listen to the words of the overcomers in Revelation. Revelation 15, 3-4 says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You know what this teaches us? God's grace is not limited by distant location, and it's also not limited by deep corruption. It didn't matter that Nineveh was outside the boundaries of Israel. It didn't matter how wicked Nineveh was. What mattered is the power of God's amazing grace and His sovereignty over sinners. Now, without a doubt, God's call to Jonah, it foreshadows the great commission from Christ who was to come. And it shows us that God has always been a God over all the nations. He's not just a limited God to the God of Israel. He is a God over all the nations. And so the Israelites needed to see this. Notice with me, letter B. Not only does the book of Jonah teach us that God's grace has no boundaries, it also teaches us the danger of spiritual pride. It teaches us the danger of spiritual pride. You see, God extending His grace beyond the boundaries of Israel is seen little bits throughout the Old Testament. A couple examples. When Elijah proclaimed that a famine was coming on Israel, he departed to live in a Gentile region at the command of the Lord. You go read 1 Kings 17, 8-9. God tells him to go off into Sidon. And there he was able to minister to a widow there. Minister to her. Elijah fed and cared for, was fed and cared for by that Gentile while, the, while Israel was famous. Elisha is another one. Elisha, in leading the Syrian general, Naaman, to be cured of his leprosy in the Jordan River. There's another Gentile who's been impacted by the one true God. Now, go with me to Luke chapter number 4, and I mention those two accounts because Jesus mentions them. 
And you see a reaction from the Jews in his day towards this. In Luke chapter 4, verse 25 through 30, Jesus, in, this is the beginning of his ministry, reveals himself as the Messiah. He's quoting scripture and saying it's fulfilled today in your hearing. And if you look at Luke chapter 4, verse 25 through verse 30, notice what he references here. He says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only Zephyrath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman, the Syrian. Jesus brings up these two Gentile accounts. But notice what happens as a result of this. When they heard these things, the Jewish people here, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with joy. No. They're all filled with wrath. They're angry that he's bringing this up. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I'd have loved to have seen how Jesus escaped that. <laughs> Everybody's crowded around him, got him to the edge of the cliff because they, they're mad about what he's just said. They're mad that he's saying this, this prophecy about the Messiah is fulfilled in him. They don't like that. And then he brings up these two Gentile accounts. They don't like that. They have a disdain for Jesus and the Gentiles. They bring him out here to the edge of the cliff. They're going to push him down, kill him. And Jesus evades them somehow, some way. He escapes that because his hour was not yet come. He wasn't meant to die that way. Praise God he wasn't. But do you see it? Do you see what, what the mindset here is? The Jews in Jesus' day had the same attitude that Jonah had towards the Gentiles in Nineveh. And so we think about, well, why, why would God show mercy to Nineveh, a wicked, violent, barbarous people, when God already has Israel as His people? Well, I think this is true. By sending His grace into the heart of paganism and displaying there His power to save, God meant to provoke His own people to jealousy. This is what God had foretold would happen even in Moses' day if they forsook him. But you know what? If you're going to forsake me, I'll save another people and show you. I'll show you my power and my blessing. Deuteronomy 32, 21. Listen to what Moses said. Or God says through Moses, They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. We see a similar truth in the New Testament, don't we? With the Jews and Israel and how they rejected Christ. Paul said it this way in Romans eleven eleven. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. You see, through Israel's rejection of Christ came the salvation that would only come through Christ Jesus. And that salvation reaches the Gentiles, but not only does that salvation reach the Gentiles, it's also sufficient for the Jews. But we know the Jews are in a hardened, blind state towards Christ. They still today reject Him as a whole. 
So with this in scope, what should Israel do? Well, they should repent and believe on Christ. But unless God, by His grace, opens their eyes and gives them a new heart, they will not do so. And God, in His grace, can do that. What we see here with Jonah, in his spiritual pride, Jonah, he needed to repent of his proud and rebellious heart towards God and His grace towards other people. And so overall, we see the danger of the spiritual pride that can happen to any one of us because none of us are immune to such a heart. But notice with me, letter C, another thing I want you to see through overall through the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah teaches us of God's sovereign rule over all things. His sovereign rule over all things. And I think it's fascinating what you, how you see this. Through the whole account of Jonah, The thread of God's sovereignty is woven throughout, binding it all together. And may I say that the thread of God's sovereignty doesn't only bind together all of Jonah, but all of Scripture. From beginning to end, there is a God who reigns supreme over all things. Beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, day one to the last day of history, God is the ruler. So how do we see God's sovereignty and His rule in the book of Jonah? Notice with me, firstly, that we see God is sovereign over His own creation. I think this is fascinating to me. Through the book, we see specific instances where God controls elements of creation for His own purpose, for His own glory. The first one we see is in chapter 1 and verse 4. What do we read happens with Jonah? Is he out on the ship and he's out at sea? The Bible says the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. He brings a storm. Upon Jonah, upon them, in the sea. It wasn't happen chance. It wasn't that the weatherman got it right, or the weatherman got it wrong. We didn't see the storm coming. God can make a storm come overnight if He wants to. Why? He who made creation controls creation. He's God. He has absolute power over everything, including the weather, as powerful as it is. Now, here's what's funny. Here's what's a, not funny, but, but a great connecting point to me. Do you remember any instance like this in the New Testament that revealed such power? <laughs> How about a man named Jesus? There on the Sea of Galilee. His disciples are afraid for their life because a storm has come upon the sea. And the Bible tells us in Matthew 8, 26 and 27 that he had calmed the storm. And notice what he says. He said to them, Why are you afraid, afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. There was a great calm. And I love what the disciples say here. They marvel. They're fascinated by this. Saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? See, the disciples, you understand this stage, they're still learning more about who Jesus really is. They believe Him to be the Messiah, but they're learning more about the truth of His nature. What kind of man was Jesus? He's the God-man. He is God in flesh. He wasn't just an ordinary prophet like Jonah. He is God wrapped in human flesh walking in this world. And He is the same God that we read of in the Old Testament with all power and sovereignty over creation. This is the God of the Bible. It is the Lord Jesus, who is the manifestation of the invisible God. God the Son. Secondly, we see God's sovereignty over the great fish. Chapter 1 and verse 17. Look at that. 
Why is there this fish, this great fish, that just happens to come where Jonah is and just happens to swallow him in the sea? The Bible says the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. You mean God can even control the animals? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely He can. He can control the animals. He can control nature. You notice that word appointed. That's a repeated word through the book of Jonah. It's important to recognize. And it indicates the Lord's power over something to use it for His purposes. We see more of this in chapter 4. We see His sovereignty in chapter 4, verse 6. God appointed a plant. Poor Jonah's pouting away. He makes a plant grow up to give him some shade. God did that. Made the plant grow. Next day, guess what God did? Chapter 4, verse 7. He appointed a worm. To come and destroy that plant. God gives and God can take away. That's how He works. And He has the right to do so. Chapter 4 and verse 8. God appointed a scorching east wind. To come and really kind of give Jonah a little lesson here. He has the power to do that too. The rule of God over all creation is unmistakable. We see His sovereignty. Not only do we see His sovereignty in creation through the book of Jonah. I want you to understand that we also see His sovereignty over mankind. You say, well, it's easy for God to control a plant or a whale, great fish. You know, those are things. We're, we're different, right? Think again. We are different in a sense. We're made in His image. We're not like plants and animals, but it doesn't change God's sovereignty over mankind. God's sovereignty is seen over Jonah's calling and direction. Even though Jonah decided to rebel and go the opposite direction... Did that stop God and His purposes in getting Jonah to Nineveh? Absolutely not. It sure did not. You understand that, 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 that God turned Jonah around whether Jonah liked it or not. That's sovereignty, friend. Now, many think that God would never have someone do something they didn't want to do. Don't tell that to Jonah. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. His will was no. God's will was yes. And guess what? God always has the last say in the matter. And a lesson we can learn from that, it's a lot easier to submit to the Lord and do His will will, than to rebel against the Lord and let His chastisement come upon us. It's a whole lot better to obey Him the first time. Secondly, we see God's sovereignty over Jonah and His salvation from death in the sea. Chapter 2. You know, you come to the end of chapter 2. Jonah through chapter 2 is literally at the bottom of the sea at the brink of death. God uses the fish to swallow him up. And what does Jonah in his prayer say as he recalls that? He says at the end of chapter 2, salvation belongs to who? The Lord. Jonah couldn't do anything to rescue himself. He was outside of his power, friend. He could not have done it. Thirdly, we see God's sovereignty over Nineveh's deliverance from his wrath. You see, understanding that all of salvation from beginning to the end is of the Lord is crucial to seeing who God is and who we are. And who we are. The wicked, barbaric people in Nineveh have repented by the masses towards the one true God. How could such a thing happen? Because God is sovereign even over repentance. Repentance and faith, Scripture teaches, are both the gifts of God. Paul told Timothy to patiently correct his opponents with the gospel and said this in 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, God may perhaps grant them repentance, 
leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's an amazing truth for us to understand and recognize. So when you look at this passage, this book, the persistent grace of God accomplishes his purposes. Why? Because he's God and he does what he wants. He can do what he wants. He has the right to do what he wants. The psalmist said in Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So, these are the overall lessons that we learn from this book. Notice with me, letter, letter three, number three, and lastly, these will be short, I promise. I want you to see the principles learned from Jonah. Just a couple of points of application for our own heart. Number one is this, letter A, is that all Christians need spiritual examination. Because there is none of us that are above becoming like Jonah. Every single one of us, we are prone to rebel, we're prone to disobey, we're prone to be proud, we're prone to do this and that. That's part of our fallen flesh that we inhabit. Jonah's attitude and actions, we should look at those and say, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live like that. I'm going to repent. I'm going to follow after God's will. Every Christian must examine themselves often. We need to examine our faith, our attitude, our behavior, our obedience, our convictions, our expectations, all of it. Examination is part of the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul said to the church in Corinth, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. He's telling this church, examine yourself in light of the faith. You see, Jonah, he was very arrogant about the grace of God. He failed to have a heart for the Gentiles like God did, even though they were Israel's enemies. Jonah was ignorant of his own sin, the depth of his own sin. He knew he was sinning, but he was ignorant of how deep it really was. And here's what really it boils down to. The only reason that Jonah is part of the covenant people of God in Israel is because of the grace of God. It's the only reason. Christian, you must understand this today, that the only reason you know Christ today is because of the grace of God. Not because of anything you did or could do. We owe everything to grace. Let us never, never forget that truth. We owe everything to grace. That leads me to the last application. Letter B, and that is that all nations need God's saving grace. God's plan has never been about one ethnic group in this world known as Israel or whoever else. It is about reaching all people groups of the world. This was the great commission given by Jesus to his church in Acts 1. He said to them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to where? The ends of the earth. Christian, I take great joy in that one truth right there. The gospel didn't go to just Jerusalem or just Judea or then stop at Samaria. No, it broke the boundaries. Crossed the big pond all the way to America. And, it perva- and, the, and the gospel was preserved and powerfully working through history all the way up until it reached to my generation. And I heard it as a young boy. That Christ came to die for sinners like me. By that message, Christ gave me a new heart. Birthed me anew into his kingdom. I'm thankful that he brought salvation 
to me, that he's brought salvation to you. And so you understand that just as Jonah, he's called to go to Nineveh with the message of God, understand that we're called to preach the gospel to every person. Doesn't matter their skin color, what language they speak, what country they're from. Doesn't matter how wicked they might look. There's some people we may judge them by the outside and think, you know what, they'll probably never hear the gospel. I guarantee you they weren't, are probably not as bad as the Ninevites were. Barbaric. Maybe they are. Maybe we just don't know. My point is that grace can change the heart of even the most wicked of sinners that we perceive. We are interwoven into the glorious work of God in God's gospel plan. And Jonah really is a small picture of that that we see in the New Testament. So as we come through this book, we'll see in more detail some of the things we've introduced today. We'll see Jonah's rebellion and God's intervention and Nineveh's repentance and Jonah's further sinful attitude at the very end. By and large, we see this, that it is a book about God's persistent grace, even through a graceless prophet. But for today... I ask us, do you see how vast God's redemptive plan is? Do you see the danger of spiritual pride? Do you see the privilege of what it is just to know Christ and be used by Him? And today, if you don't know Christ, my prayer is that you would see the the great need that you have. See your sin as it is before a holy and righteous God and that Christ alone, He is salvation. The Scriptures say, repent and believe on Christ. Repent and believe on Him. Turn to Him today and be saved by faith. Let's stand to our feet as we close in a song. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you again this morning. Thankful, Lord, for this book of Jonah that we're about to go through. We know that it is somewhat of a unique book, but gives such a great and grand picture of your heart, Father. What grace is meant to do. Really what the gospel is doing, we're called to do with the gospel in our own day and age. Help us to dive into this book with an open heart and an open mind. Help us to glean what is necessary for our spiritual lives. Help us to grow from it. Help us to live and be changed by it. Pray you bless this closing song at this time. In Jesus' name, amen.